So I've been a little bit worried about you. Mm-hmm. Uh, particularly, like, maybe it's it's not very nice to bring up, but how are you and Arch doing? Oh, oh, yeah, I can see why. We're we're doing fine. We we had some arguments, but we're doing fine. I actually this Sunday, I tried to start my computer. And um, since I don't trust the the graphics we'll use, I uh, always run start X the first thing I do, and it crashed. So apparently, the binary blob drivers from Nvidia had become too old, and since I don't really use any of the binary blob features i thought ah so heck with it i can run nouveau drivers instead and the really bad thing with the nouveau drivers is that they are absolutely impossible to spell <laughs> it's that french heritage yeah i'm having a serious beef with both english and french when it comes to spelling so they gotta take care of that uh so I spent Sunday nights talking to Arch, talking through our differences, and uh, eventually I had something running. Mostly from, I think I fixed that mostly from memory, and doing some, some small amounts of googling. Uh, and after that, it has been great. Well, that's reassuring. Yeah, well, until I started Zoom today, and everything flickered, and then I started Firefox and everything crashed. But <laughs> that's... <laughs> uh, Maybe there's another conversation to be had. Yeah, I think so. I'm still a fan of Arch, though. I don't know why. Maybe it's some kind of... I don't know. Some people like running long distances. I like running Arch Linux. <laughs> <laughs> Put that on a t-shirt. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so... Yeah, I think it's one of those passionate relationships. <laughs> very fiery. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I had a very fiery fling with Arch back in the day as well. Unfortunately, that one sort of crashed and burnt. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, that was one of those, oh, I didn't know that Arch updates could be uh, absolutely breaking changes. Oh, they can. <laughs> so I run a few updates and then I try to start it again. It did not. Yeah. There was a lot of information about how to fix it, but none of it fixed my problem. Oh. Because I guess in the process, my GDM, so GNOME Display Manager, got corrupted or something. Yeah. So that was a fun ride. So I think I could start it manually, but I couldn't get it to, to start properly or something like that. Okay. I've had issues with Pop OS more recently as well, where currently I, whenever I restart, I have to go into recovery mode and select the old kernel because I try to do an update and that absolutely uh, shat the bed. So, yeah. That's a classic on, on almost all OSs. I suppose you haven't had that on Mac OS. I don't think I have. I mean, I've had Windows installs crap out entirely uh, without anything happening. Just shutting off one day and... Yeah. Okay, this this is weird. One of the lamps in my ceiling here has been broken for a few months. Electrical issue where it just turned off. That happened once shortly after installing it and now it turned on cool um <laughs> yeah fixed i guess <laughs> i've been meaning to call an electrician because i'm not allowed to fix that kind of thing but it's it's weird so the first time he installed it uh i ran it for like a few minutes and then it just turned off and i'm like hmm yeah you'll probably have to come out and fix this <laughs> and he came out and he fixed it and then it ran for months, fine. Then suddenly it shut off. 
and I tried switching out the the bulb. Yep. Nothing. So yeah, now it's switched back on, <laughs> which is <laughs> sort of great because maybe I don't have to fix it, but it's also sort of worrying. Like, what happened now? Yeah, maybe it runs Windows ninety five. Uh, it's like heat expansion, cold contraction. I don't know. Space race. Yeah, probably. Well, so yeah, my wiring is about as uh, reassuring as Linux, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So it has been a ride. Uh, And I think, to be totally honest, Arch works perfectly on my laptop. Hmm. But that laptop uh, doesn't have an external graphics card. I think the graphics card is to blame for many things. And I've heard rumors that, is it AMD that has the ATI graphics cards nowadays? Yeah. Are they still called ATI graphics cards? Uh, yeah, I guess guess they are. I have no idea. Yeah. I'm from Jämtland. <laughs> the AMD cards are supposedly more well supported on Linux. They are, right? Supposedly. I haven't tried them. I think that when I bought this computer, the NVIDIA cards were better. But that was just because the ATI cards were worse. They weren't really good, the NVIDIA cards. So everything's relative. So I think NVIDIA has always had the sort of um, performance upside. Yep. They've been stronger on the... Just stronger hardware, stronger for machine learning, stronger for everything but the ATI AMD ones have been better for actually working making them work on Linux (laughs) yeah exactly they've been more reliable they've been better supported but no one has been wanting to use them aside from people who just can't can't be bothered with NVIDIA or don't need sort of gaming or AI performance now current generation AMD cards have been a significant improvement. Uh, they're they're almost up there for some applications for gaming. They're good, apparently. Cool. But you can't get them. Well, you can't get anything. <laughs> so it doesn't really matter. <laughs> they were like, oh, yeah, here's, here's a competitive release. Then everything just went out of stock. Yeah, there are no components anymore uh, because of pandemic and bad politics. Yeah. Speaking of which, what's your take on microservices? <laughs> Speaking of bad politics? I don't know. I, I just wanted to do a really, really bad segue. Yeah. Seg, the seg has been weighed. It has 5.4 pounds. I'll just let that one sit for a bit. Well, my thinking on microservices is that it's not really solving a technical problem it's about solving people problems which are also valid problems to solve and i think where microservices fit in best is if you need to be able to keep several teams decoupled from each other and that does potentially help progress uh, like team performance so if one team is doing something weird and uh, demanding, it m- shouldn't have to affect another team uh, unless they need to collaborate or coordinate, which is which is sort of where where the hard parts come in. But microservices as a technical solution, to a large extent, sure. If you need to, if you need to scale horizontally, just be able to set up more of a this part of our application. Sometimes that's good. But typically, that could just as well be solved by setting up just more instances of your application if it was a monolith. So I don't think the granular control is all that important unless your application is very, very large, which in which case you probably have the, have the people problem of needing to scale. So scale horizontally number of teams, which is, I think, a harder problem than scaling technology horizontally. So I think sometimes people mistake what 
microservices is a good solution for. And my experiences with microservices have been almost uh, entirely meh to bad. But that doesn't mean that doesn't mean the technology is meh too bad. But we did it in small teams, yep. which I don't think is is helpful unless you're doing it specific with very specific reasons. Uh, what's your best experience with microservices? So the one that I can that I can speak most to is is both sort of the best and worst. So that's the a microservice as architecture we set up ourselves from very very bare bones tooling to run uh, SaaS for several a number of years but when the team is initially three people and then gets scaled down to one and a half <laughs> we don't need like overhead is not a good thing there and microservices do impose overhead yep. if we had picked up something like uh, maybe Apache Thrift that was around then uh, for doing sort of RPC for us and leaning a little bit more on existing tools. That would have saved some effort, but we still would have had most of the problems we had, which was things like circuit breaking and making cross-service uh, collaboration and coordination calls efficient and performant and solving a ton of of distributed systems problems that we introduced by distributing our system, which was entirely unnecessary in our case. And we would have been able to move the app much, much quicker with a more monolithic approach. But there was a reason that we chose microservices. It was very, very important that the system could scale performantly to large numbers. It never did large numbers, but that was part of the initial premise of, of rewriting it and the rewrite was was warranted it was in in a bad place to start with but damn we could have saved so much time just doing some django yeah so let's let's just play with the thought i don't know if you say that in english probably not um let's assume that you would have picked django instead and i said okay let's run with this and if or when we run into performance problems, we buy a bigger machine, a virtual one or physical one or yeah. whatever was the thing at the time. Would that have worked? There would have been one part where, uh, and I will say that was the one part we scaled horizontally using the microservice architecture specifically. That was file storage and media management, which was very high traffic and so we needed access controls on top of file storage. And this was before S3 was all that mature. Yep. Or it was coming into its own, but it wasn't uh, It wasn't the default. And honestly, I'm not sure if S3 would have been great there either. It, it, would, have been, it would have been better than building all of the stuff we did our own, on our own. But it wasn't really really a consideration at the time and it wouldn't have been an option because it needed to be in Sweden. Yeah. Bunch of bunch of legal reasons uh, where it yeah, I'm not sure it it would have been workable. But yeah, aside from the file management thing, which would definitely have needed to been spun off in some way for higher performance essentially. That would have been the primary reason just as in that off but it could have been solved in a in a number of ways where um, where we still could have had the sort of strict uh, the strict security that was applied while serving a ton of requests and it could have been done with a single machine it just needed to be a pretty beefy machine which knew what it was doing with io <laughs> yeah and the the more central part of the application i mean that would have been that would have been fine served from probably a machine with four cores or something instead of the sort of 12 nodes or whatever we had just due to <laughs> like if if you're spinning up services odds are you're not putting all of those services on one machine you shouldn't no we had some uh, some services that shared machines and that was fine because they yeah. they were low traffic and low intensity but yeah 
we we could have we could have saved our, ourselves a lot of headache by doing something more minimal first and by rolling with whatever paradigm the tooling we chose had so if we'd done django we could have leaned on so we did a bunch of django rest framework but without models to lean on that sounds painful uh, it's an okay rest framework for for sort of more manual use cool but it's still like you get so much productivity advantage from from leaning on the models yeah so in that case i would have definitely gone for a monolith and i tend to lean towards monoliths uh, partly because elixir is very good at monoliths and gets some spectacular special powers for from slightly more monolithic uh, setups you, it's not that you can't split an elixir application or an erlang cluster sort of elixir application into multiple different services that do different things but it's already good at utilizing hardware so you probably don't benefit as much from sort of separating these because one of the reasons that it's good for for example splitting off a service from a ruby application or a python application is means that you can also let it be more concurrent and more parallel so it, it can use cores more effectively yeah that's not a thing in elixir <laughs> like the, indeed the beam is very good at using cores already it's very fast i'm thinking about that because modern computers or hmm, modern vpss to say they should be able to run one process per core and max out on the cpu on the other hand uh, there's python isn't fast or it depends <laughs> you can write very fast python of course but python isn't very fast by default indeed so you you need to know what you're doing and probably optimize here and there and then i don't know if you want to optimize in that way when you are in a django application and also wants to move fast but i guess there's it's better to optimize in a django application than to write a whole uh, microservice uh, ecosystem uh, from from scratch so mm. yeah i wouldn't typically recommend that aside from it being a pretty good learning experience but as a as an investment it was it wasn't the best yeah we thought it was that's why we did it but it wasn't yeah hindsight is 2020 yeah how how has your experience with microservices been oh awful so uh the last place i worked at i they had an a microservice setup or architecture or something uh it was built on kubernetes and uh so that was good i think yeah it's quite a powerful tool and it had roughly 70 services running Seven zero, that is. That seems like a lot. Yeah, I I worked with two or three of them. I don't really know what the others did, but but one of the downsides there was that nobody really dared to remove any services because they didn't know if they were used anywhere. So yeah. And they had a they had developed their own little program to manage all of this on the developer computers so the thing i did the first day was to download that and then run the install and then wait for 45 minutes and then i had almost installed all of the services but some of them really didn't work right now with this setup and so on and so on so yeah it was they didn't really make a good impression on me and they communicated between the services using JSON over HTTP. So I guess the slowest possible way. Well, if you really go for it, you can make it slower, but that's not... I mean... Yeah, Telnet, perhaps? 
I, I don't know. Nah, that's faster because then you have an open connection. Yeah. So I can respect using HTTP and, and JSON in the sense that it's very, very well known how to load a balance, cache, and uh, work with it in in a number of different ways. Like HTTP is a very well-known beast. Indeed. But it's also... Yeah, it's it's costly, or it feels costly to to do it that way. And I think when when setting up services, how you define contracts between them becomes fairly important. Yeah, the sort and of in this case there were no contracts. Oh, that's great. I mean, that's something we did, or they were implicit. Yeah, that's something we did pretty well with ours. I mean, we ripped off uh, Spotify design. <laughs> we used uh, protobufs for for uh, defining the contracts. That's good because protobufs is built for that. Yeah, they're they're explicit, uh, which is which was nice and enforces some type information which Python will not. Indeed. And in that case, like talking between services, that was very good. Still I I'm a little bit hesitant about protobuf like one of the big microservices solutions right now is gRPC. Yep. And uh, that builds on protobufs. And I've seen a lot of examples about why that's not a a superb solution all the time. The handling of sort of optional fields and backwards and forwards compatibility and all of that is, is a tricky story. Yeah, that's always a pain, I think. Yeah. There's, and it's a, um, a research field, as they say. I can say the, the tooling for doing protocol buffers too with python when i was using it was also a bit painful and not very good at introspecting yeah or it was i mean it was a google tool and i'm sure it fit perfectly into their way of working but for it wasn't pythonic at all which which meant it was a bit obnoxious to deal with yeah i i think i prefer ex- that kind of more explicit contract <laughs> when when you're doing a services architecture i mean micro or not just making sure that the contracts are very very explicit yeah um did you have any testing between the services that involved like three or more services and just and didn't mock them away no but typically our services did not depend that's not true. <laughs> I think we mostly had, had tests for the things that the services did in isolation, and our test coverage wasn't all that fantastic either. We had tests for a lot of the most important stuff, yeah, uh, and not so much for other things. I think if you're working in in certain environments, I think microservices make more sense. So if you're doing Go you're in sort of the cloud native space where there's a ton of tooling suited to building microservices, it seems. And just suited to that stuff in general and goes so nicely packages static binaries for you. Yep. Has a lot of nice embeddable databases and all of that stuff. So I wonder if if it's certain ecosystems uh, are also more suited to microservices. On the other hand, I've seen quite a bit of Go, or that's a lie. I've seen exactly one example of Go where someone builds everything he needs and runs it on one VPS as a majestic monolith. I think he runs SQLite inside his binary too. So everything is just one binary. Yeah. It's a fun way to do it, and it's one way that I think should be pushed further. Yeah, absolutely. So I've definitely explored that approach a fair bit, because some of the things that microservices enable are things I don't feel I need due to the runtime I'm on. So things like scaling across more cores, like running more instances or offloading work off of 
off of this to some service or those are concerns about how how your code runs while i think when microservices do what they're supposed to they mostly manage as i said human concerns where you want to avoid so i read this there was a post I think it was called Building Silos and Preventing Collaboration or something like that. Good title. Yeah, because leadership often wants to achieve collaboration and break down silos. We want everyone talking. We want everyone collaborating. But the thing is, what does collaboration actually look like? Meetings, mostly. <laughs> lots of conversation, lots of making sure everyone's on the same page, lots of work to coordinate the work. Yep. And if you can isolate teams and their concerns and their work when you're at some certain types of scale, that can really be the difference between glacial pace and and uh, a brisk jog. <laughs> oh yes. And for me, my my goal is sort of if I if I have a team and right now I do have a team keep it at around five people because I don't want to bother scaling. If I was building a product right now, I would build a majestic monolith and I would probably just slap SQLite into it and watch it go on a fast NVMe drive somewhere <laughs> in the cloud. Yep. If I want to get really, really greedy for the performance, I would even maybe rent a uh, bare metal bare metal you can use all the yeah. all the syllables <laughs> it has it because there's so much performance there i think uh, some hacker news person was quoted as saying like 5000 reads no uh, 10000 reads and 5000 writes a second or something on sqlite nice and that's more than I estimate I would need for a successful sort of uh, do-it-on-your-own kind of SaaS, which is what I would want to build. Yep. It's not what I would suggest if, like, oh, our goal is explicitly to dominate the globe and we already have immense scale and need to hit these and these large numbers of requests per second and uh, redundancies and uh, high availability and all of that. There are there are cases where I absolutely would not choose SQLite. I didn't choose SQLite for my current client. I chose Postgres because uh, the SQLite approach is not something I know as well. So I wouldn't do a, as good a job with it. I'd, I'd do that to myself, not to my clients. <laughs> Sounds good. When would you choose to micro a service? I think I would prefer not to. Well, if there is a tool in another language than the monolith that I really want to use and I want to, for some reason, communicate over HTTP, then. But I could also just run it and talk to it via standard in and standard out, I suppose. Uh, so, hmm, I don't know. At work, we're thinking of setting up an auth service that does all the authing and um, like handles reset password and all that stuff and handing out JWT tokens left, right and center. And I'm slightly skeptical of setting it up as an another service but i'm not gonna die on that hill <laughs> so i don't know it's it feels like one of those yeah that could be okay but then we will have user ideas as that we cannot put a foreign key constraint locally which we, of course, cannot do anyway because we're using a document database, but but bear with me. <laughs> uh. <laughs> but yeah, that was not being able to 
not having the auth partly the authentication data but also the authorization or actually the the organizational structure for authorization both of those being in services was an absolute pain of overhead uh, for the system yeah. I was was dealing with. And there are probably best practices that we were missing out on, on how we should have done that. But it would have been pretty simple if it was just all in the same database and we could just query for the data we needed and match up sort of this oh, you're in this organization with this role, you have these permissions. Yep. Now we had to make requests and get responses and we had to make them fancy so we didn't have to make tons of requests and it was a whole thing. Yeah, and then you introduce caching in one or another way. Oh yeah, we had to do tons of caching. Even if you don't call it caching. Yeah, and then you have another problem. It's Caching is interesting in its painfulness. Yeah, and things like microservices also introduce the need for um, <clears throat> back pressure and circuit breakers. Like what happens when your auth service is down? Your application should probably not start throwing 500s. It should probably be serving up something about the service being down, but it can't do anything useful if it can't authenticate the user, most likely. Yeah. If the user was already authenticated, maybe. Yeah, assuming like with a with a jot, as I've heard them pronounced. Yeah. You can absolutely still like rely on the signature. Yep. But the question is, do you have the user data for the user ID in that uh, from that token so that you can pull down the user data and sort of do meaningful things or is that user data in the authentication service <laughs> that's an important question Ouch. yeah what i've heard is good to break apart is uh, sort of the user account from the login method i know the elixir outlaws talked about that at some point recently hmm. where for example it doesn't take long for a product to start needing to support multiple ways of logging in. Yep. And not tying that into or complicating the this is a user data structure with this is a GitHub login and this is uh, an Auth0 login, this is a Jira login and this is something else. Yeah. This is a traditional password login. Oh, but that's on the user, right? Uh, well, should it be? <laughs> yeah. The, I think that's probably an, an earned wisdom that I, I haven't run into it so much because we I've mostly had to support single ways of signing in. Yeah. We did do some single sign-on, but that was the pain there wasn't about the sign-in method as much as just dealing with SAML. Samuel sounds like a beast. It is. That people are like, please not. <laughs> it's a markup language for security assertions. That must be good. It's not. It's terrible. Is it XML-based? Oh, yes. So, so XML-based. Oh, cool. So it's a modern version of Active Directory or something like that. I don't know because I haven't tried talking to Active Directory directly, but I think there's always an Active Directory behind most of the SAML integrations I've done. <laughs> Exciting. Yeah. Yeah. No, but I think when you create microservices, you break apart. Like, you, in, part of the point is that you introduce formality and structure in how you access like how you operate on data that is owned by a different service yep so it becomes super important how that split happens and how easy it would be to reintroduce two services to each other after splitting them apart 
because if you've done the split poorly or you find out later that this doesn't fit at all uh, and this will this will have performance implications or it will have uh, like uh, productivity implications then remerging should be an option but for example if you're doing polyglot where you introduce the new language for the new service then that's out the window yeah if you're doing it in the same language you have a much better chance of re merging things and that was on the roadmap for our architecture but the product was sunset before that happened oh but we were looking to build essentially re <laughs> so so i would have started to replace libraries so you could just pass them an option and they would call local code instead <laughs> and just start yep. jamming all the database tables back into the same database instead of separate ones. Yeah. And suddenly it would have been a monolith again. Whoop, whoop. With weirdly specific contracts in certain parts. And that's not too yeah, bad. that would have been fine. Some overhead, I suppose. But... Yeah, I mean, we would have started removing some of the worst offenders from of sort of bad communication patterns. Yep. And just re just used SQL to make proper queries again. Yeah. Uh, one thing that I find interesting is that in all the microservices, if they are working in, well, kind of the same domain or with it, each other, you will need to have some common libraries. And if this common library has functions to speak to the other microservices, they need to be upgraded in lockstep. You, you cannot upgrade one of them and then the other. If the library isn't written in a very clever way, of course. Yeah, so you do introduce the requirement that you maintain compatibility across your services. Uh, like your service libraries need... And that that's the reason why protobufs are all optional all the time these days and yep. because Google needs to deal with that problem at an immense scale. Yep. From what I understand, they do that by requiring forwards and backwards compatibility. And do you and your org have the have a good way of, of working with that, of enforcing that, of making that a good experience? Because that's that's what you got to do if you have have sort of that kind of shared tooling and i think splitting things apart prematurely is very it can be very very costly yeah it's also one of those housekeeping problems uh, you cannot go to like the chief marketing officer and say hi i would like to put more time into making it more painless to upgrade our microservices because that won't give any money that won't do anything good with their results so which which i guess speaks for your experience uh, when you said that you would have moved so much faster with a monolith yeah especially one with good tooling and moving fast is usually equals or implies a more exciting bottom line. More money in, less money put on janitorial stuff. Yeah, I mean, that's the that's the startup angle, at least, or growth company overall. But most companies want their products to to ma be making progress, being, being built out. And that means... So I think if you have, like, five teams working away at a product then you have a very different problem than someone who has five people working away at a software product. Yep. And somewhere around there is where I think you, you need to consider how you split up the work and how you split up the code and how you can manage concerns and still... and make sure that coordination doesn't strangle all of the productivity out of the organization. Yeah. But I don't think like microservices on their own do do very little there there are people that are 
super keen on microservices from the get-go and I'm not sure what the upside is. I, I haven't quite grokked where what the angle is there or if it's mostly because we're going to need it later because I know what I want to build and it means this big thing. Hmm. But that's not... That's very brave of them. <laughs> that's not typically where I where I like to start. And I know you have a... You're dealing with an Elixir code base. I am. And I mean, if what you want to set up is, is sort of some isolation where you don't tie authentication very tightly to other data in the system i mean that can be that can be handled in many ways but there i'd be surprised if you would see much benefit from splitting it out yeah i i'm i'm mildly mildly skeptical would it still be an elixir service i don't know we haven't really talked about it because we've been busy with with other things uh so Maybe, or maybe a like plain Django install could do what we need <laughs> because it has the almost all the auth just built in. So that's another way to solve it. I, I think that's uh, that's you having a hammer. Nah, that's my colleague having a hammer. <laughs> it's <laughs> it's his idea <laughs> to use Django. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I'm like, yeah, it, it would be good if, if Django existed in Phoenix, but it doesn't, so eh. uh, And the question there is, what, what problem are you trying to solve? <laughs> because uh, it's not clear to me. Like, I know the auth story in that code base is a bit odd. Yeah. But overall, like, any auth tool would probably do the job, and, I, like, Phoenix has at least three of them. Oh, cool. I think one of the problems is that we're not using Phoenix. That's fair. That's fair. So it might be time to introduce Phoenix to one end of that code base. Yep. I don't know how hard is it to introduce Phoenix on an already existing application. It could be uh, easier probably. <laughs> so what I would probably do is do mix Phoenix new on and just create a new Phoenix project and lift in everything from the so-called endpoint, the configs, and like everything that seems necessary. But but I would use the generator because it can be a bit of a pain to figure out all the things you need to do yep. to, to sort of set up the scaffolding. In the end, Phoenix is just another application in your, uh, or another... Um, it's the endpoint essentially that you start in your supervision tree. So it's not, it's not something all too strange. But there's a lot of config and and stuff that can can matter. Interesting. But I mean, you could set it up and have it run at a on a separate port from whatever you have. Yeah, uh, that might be a good solution. And then uh, moving things, but still keeping it in the same code repository. Yeah. So, yeah, uh, we did bolt on Absint because uh, GraphQL seemed like a good idea at the time. I'm not totally sure that it is because now we have three ways of communicating with the rest of the world uh, and we can pick any combination of those three. So, But, but we did manage to bolt on GraphQL with uh, Plug and that was quite nice. So you already have Plug now. Yeah, we do. It's running on another port, and then we're doing some some exciting stuff with the firewall. No, not the firewall. Okay. The load balancer. So I think there's a case to be made for, like, if you want to bring in Phoenix, and that helps you bring in more auth tooling, then you could probably merge your, your plug setup with the Phoenix setup, because Absinthe and Phoenix are, they know each other. Yeah, they seem to be good friends. And maybe we should move all the raw cowboy endpoints onto plug first, but I'm not sure about that. I think that might be a little bit hairier, but I'm not not certain. I mean, Phoenix Mm. Phoenix is just a bunch of web stuff with plug. Oh, cool. 
yeah, I, th this sounds like you're on a migration path if you just look at it, right? Well, we are. But, but there's so many things to migrate and, and not just because there are many things to migrate, but there are so much interesting technical debt to take care of. And still it all works. So I'm, I'm very fascinated. Yeah. Uh, there's, it has a unique, no, not probably unique, but I will say it anyway. It has a unique mix of really good and really bad engineering. Yeah, it's an, it's an interesting code base. Very eventy. Yeah. Yeah, very eventy. But not event sourced. No. Absolutely not. Or maybe, I mean, if you squint. In the tests, I think <laughs> it is. But I'm not sure. Yeah. What's the definition of event sourced? <laughs> I think it's that you have a stream of events, like an append-only log. Yep. And you use that to boil down whatever data or whatever state you want to look at. Ah, yes. So you, you denormalize the data. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I've seen that done in the more exotic JavaScript frameworks of five years ago. Hmm. It was painful, but fun, like running Arch. Yeah, so, I mean, Rea Reacts, Redux, and all of that stuff, that did event sourcing on the on the front-end side in many ways. Cool. Which allowed them to have a time-traveling debugger. I mean, you could step through your events and see what, what they cost. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but it's cool. It does sound cool, though. Time travel. Yeah, so... Microservices, it's almost like there's, uh, the answer is it depends and uh, it's one of those technical solutions with trade-offs. That's, that's my, my feeling, which is sort of the boring response. I'm typically against them until I need them. Yeah, okay. I thought you were going to take a strong stance there for a while and then you were like... Or like depends. Yeah. Okay. I can also say I'm typically against them because it's uh it's a lot of work and yeah. It also introduces a bunch of formality. I'm not super keen on, uh, but it's not necessarily bad just because I don't like it. <laughs> <laughs> I will say that I'm against them until someone proves that they are needed. Oh yes, actual evidence. Yeah. We prove a lot of things in computer science. That's especially in sort of software without the science, I guess, software engineering, web development. Yeah, lots of things proven. <laughs> Evidence. <laughs> Indeed. Back. I'm going to try science. Yeah. That's how you get Haskell. <laughs> nah, that's not how you get Haskell. No, I guess you get TLA plus or something. Is that? Yeah, you get TLA plus. You get Haskell because you need a, a lingua franca for uh, academic languages or academic lazy functional programming languages. There were about three or five. No, it was worse. Uh, generally, a scientific paper started with, let's define a language with the semantics so we can do our thing in. Uh, and when you had understood the language, then the thing that's really important shows up. <laughs> So Haskell was a game changer in that way. So it's it's really a domain-specific language for academic papers in computer science? Yes, it's one of its uses. Another use, which is amazing, is uh, to write interpreters, parsers, compilers, and things like that. It's really good at that. Uh, I, I prefer to think of it uh, as a DSL for academic papers. <laughs> it's more fun, isn't it? <laughs> So microservices in Haskell, that's next for you? Sure. Then you can have, um, there's a great library, which I forgot the name of, of course, uh, where you can write the endpoints or the contracts of your endpoints in the type system, which makes it all very much harder to work with. But it's also very cool and you get a sanity check on them. We should do some hacking on that someday, I think. You will will uh, need to drink bleach after that, I think. Yeah. <laughs> Just to clean it out of maybe the system. That, maybe that should be a live stream. Yeah. Uh, I've been considering just inviting people to try to uh, teach me different things. Like, oh, teach me Haskell or teach me Erlang. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like a fun concept. Yeah. Because I, I really, really enjoy learning 
new weird things that I didn't already know. Yeah. But like <laughs> I do prioritize my time, but for, for an hour or two every week, I could definitely do something that I might not be, end up using. Sounds good. And it, it tends to broaden one's horizons. Yeah. Speaking of which, did you get any help on that Sigler problem or in learning Sigler? Yeah. So I have, I have a good offer from, from Isaac. So uh, he wrote Sigler for oh cool so uh, that's the sig tool the tooling for uh, interfacing zig and elixir yep I, I think it's a standing offer right now i i can't commit to actually starting to do that but i think i have a standing offer for for experimenting with that and sort of library bindings and all of the all of the things i feel like i i need to know if i want to interface with cool code that already exists nice so would that be a a good topic for a Lars Learn Something Friday stream? I mean, that could be a, a start of it or a part of it, for sure. That could be interesting. Yeah. <laughs> like fi finding overlap with his time zone. Well, I think he's moved. So maybe he's not in uh, on the West Coast of the US anymore. So that could help. <laughs> it's the worst time zone. Terrible <laughs> overlap with it here. Not. <laughs> yeah. So it's not the worst in an objective way, but if you're in UTC or something, <laughs> no, it's like just that, it's, it's just literally the worst. Why would anyone be in that time? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> your time is bad, and you should feel bad. Yes, <laughs> please restart your time 